This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Jay Sklar on how to teach through the Old Testament. Jay Sklar is Vice President of Academics at Covenant Theological Seminary. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2022 General Assembly. Let's listen as Dr. Sklar shares how to teach through the Old Testament. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Great to see you. The fact that you even found where we were today already testifies to your ingenuity uh, and skill. And what I'm going to do today is, uh, is really two things. I want to introduce you to a tool. And then I want to give an example of how I use that tool. But I want to begin with a question. And the question is this. I wonder if you have in your home a junk drawer. This is the drawer that when you need to open the lock on the shed in the back and you have to find the key, you go to the junk drawer. Or if you're missing that AAA battery, you go to the junk drawer. And if your junk drawer is like mine, you know what's in the junk drawer but it has no organization whatsoever. I think for many of us in the church, the Old Testament is kind of like that. We know what's in there, David and Goliath, that's in the Old Testament. Daniel and the lion's den, that's in the Old Testament. But we don't have any way of organizing it. We don't know often who came first, David or Daniel. And it's, it's really actually understandable because when you think about the Old Testament, you have uh, all these challenges. It's uh, at least three times longer than the New Testament, as I like to frequently remind my New Testament colleagues. Uh, It takes place over 1,500 years of history, and it takes place sometimes in Egypt, sometimes in Israel, sometimes in Babylon, sometimes in Persia. Keeping track of all of this is incredibly difficult. How do you do it? Well, we have another drawer in our house. It's our cutlery drawer. And in our cutlery drawer, everything is perfectly in place because we have an organizer that keeps our forks together and our spoons together and our knives together. And what I want to give you today is a tool that kind of acts like that for the Old Testament. It puts it into a format that you can uh, easily remember, that you can very easily teach, and that really begins to take some of the mystery out of the Old Testament. My experience is that a lot of people in the church are actually intimidated by the Old Testament 
because they feel like it's, it's just so big, they get lost so quickly, they don't know how to orient themselves. And uh, the tool we're looking at today really helps with that. So the next five, 10 minutes, I'm gonna talk about the tool, and then I'll turn and illustrate how I use that tool when I'm teaching through the Old Testament. So the tool, as you've already probably seen on your sheet, is called Casket Empty, uh, developed by a good friend of ours, uh, and it's meant to point to the central theological truth of the scripture, that Christ is risen. And if some of you are thinking, well, Jay, it should actually then say tomb empty, I would say fair point, but tomb empty just didn't work. And so casket empty, we're going to wink and say we understand what it's pointing to, uh, but understanding this acronym is super, super helpful. It goes like this. The C stands for creation, Genesis 1 through 11. The A for Abraham, Genesis 12 through 50. The S, Sinai to settlement, and that takes us through uh, Judges and Ruth. The K stands for kings, so here were Samuel, kings, chronicles, etc. Some of the prophets will fit in here. The E is for exile, so here's the end of kings, and again, several of the prophets. And then the T, we're cheating a bit here, but it's second temple. And this is Ezra, Nehemiah, and then again, some of the prophets fit in here. We're not going to look at empty today, but just in case you're wondering... E stands for expectation, so it covers the intertestamental period. M stands for Messiah, so you talk about the Gospels. P for Pentecost, so you talk about Acts. T for teaching, so you talk about the epistles. And Y stands for revelation yet to come, which I thought was exceptionally clever. But in any case, casket empty um, what they've done is they've put together all sorts of resources. You can go to casketempty.com. Uh, please don't go there now or I'll lose you for the next 20 minutes. But it will be there after this seminar is done. And some of the most helpful resources they've given um, are some of these pamphlets that they've developed. I only brought two with me. One covers the Old Testament casket, one the new, empty. I'll pass these through. But I'm just wondering, could you come and hold this up for... For us right at the front here. So the one that I have on the screen shows part of what's being held up here and this especially for visual learners is brilliant. It's the whole Old Testament at a glance. You can see along the top that thick blue line is the timeline and then when you get about halfway across you can see it on here it divides into two with a gray bar on the top and a blue on the bottom. That's the division of the northern and southern kingdom. And that in itself is so helpful because when you're reading through kings, you're often thinking, okay, is this king in the northern or in the southern? And uh, some of us might even be thinking, oh, did the kingdom divide? Yes, it did. Northern and southern. And uh, the prophets, which are not in chronological order in our Bibles, they're placed appropriately, north or south. There are all sorts of symbols that, that uh, help you understand some of the theological um, emphases of the different sections of scripture. So uh, I was talking to a grad recently. He said, yeah, I've, I laminated mine. I keep it in my Bible. And uh, people in your church, especially again, if they're visual learners, when you're teaching through this, you can actually order a banner that's like four foot by 12 foot or something like that. You can order slides. Super, super helpful. So thank you. If you want to pass that and here's empty can be passed along as well. So you folks can take a look at it. Uh, and so this is the tool. On your handout, 
you will see that I've given on the one side, it says understanding the Old Testament and uh, basically gives you, when I go through casket, some of the main points that I hit along the way. And so we're going to go through that in just a minute here. On the back, you will see three different tables. The top table gives a visual picture of the Old Testament uh, covering the dates, the different books covered, and the different characters covered. So that's sort of the Old Testament at a glance with casket. The middle one breaks down the books of the Old Testament in the four categories that we often use in the Christian church. Uh, the Pentateuch or the Law or the Torah, historical books, Psalms and Wisdom, and then Prophets. Uh, in the Jewish tradition, they have a different, slightly different breakdown, but this is the one we often use in the Christian church. And then the bottom chart gives you another way of going through the story of the Old Testament, this time using four Ps. Um, uh, and as you go through the story of the Bible, it's possible to show people how God always calls a certain people to a certain place, uh, promises his presence to them, and always with the same purpose, from Genesis to Revelation, the spreading of his kingdom of goodness, justice, mercy, and love throughout all the earth. And that's actually a complementary way, along with casket, that you can go through and teach the Old Testament. So this is the tool. I found it to be incredibly helpful. I've used it in different contexts. I've done a 12-week um, adult Sunday school class with this. So an hour each week for 12 weeks. That's one of the best formats I find because it gives people enough time to really begin to grasp what's going on. I've done this in four weeks at a church conference. Uh, not four weeks, four different nights at a church conference. Um, and then I've done this in one hour before for an adult Sunday school class. So it's kind of like an accordion. Uh, today we've got like 40 minutes left. So I'm going to be flying through. I'm at a very high level. Um, dipping down along the way, but what I'm doing is just showing you uh, at that kind of high level with a few granular details how you can use this to teach folks through the Old Testament. So having said that, let's, let's dive in. Uh, next 40 minutes, we're, we're going through casket. I might not get all the way to the T. If not, that's okay. I'm, I'm gonna, I might skip a couple letters near the end so that I can do the tie-in to how this sets us up for understanding Jesus better. All right, so let's dive in. Creation, Sea of Casket. Books covered here, Genesis 1 through 11, major characters, Adam, Eve, and Noah. And I find that whenever I'm going through this, it's always helpful to remind folks, big picture with each letter, what part of the Bible's covered and who the major characters are in there that they can orient themselves to what you're teaching. So as you go through Genesis 1 through 11, of course, in Genesis 1 and 2, some of the things that you want to highlight uh, are that uh, primarily humanity is created in the image of God. As you're going through Genesis 1, if you're looking at it from a literary perspective alone, you see the creation of humanity is really the peak of the narrative. More attention is given to that than anything else in Genesis 1. Uh, and we read there, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And uh, the discussion, of course, of what this exactly means has been huge in the church. So there are at least two different things that I want to, to teach as I'm going through this part of the scripture. The first is simply to point out that male and female are created equally in the image of God. Uh, we have a friend um, who is a self-professed feminist. 
and she was once talking with Ski and me and sharing how she struggled with different parts of the Bible, uh, felt it was very patriarchal, and I was able to share with her, did you know that actually in the very first chapter we read, God creates male and female equally in his image, which is just what you'd expect if God valued women as highly as men. And if he didn't, this is not at all what you'd expect in the very first chapter of his word. Now, that didn't solve all her questions, but she said that's incredibly helpful to know that the story of the Bible starts that way. Now, of course, we're, at the, we're in the PCA, and so we understand that being created equal doesn't mean there can't be role distinctions in the family or in the church. But even there, I think we need to remember those role distinctions come under this umbrella of the equal value and worth of all men and women, all brothers and sisters created in the image of God. So that's one of the first things you want to highlight. A second thing, of course, is to answer the question, what does it mean to be in the image of God? And here there's a huge discussion in the history of the church, what it means to be in God's image. And as I think through this question, what's been most helpful for me is to think primarily in terms of two R's, uh, resemblance and representation. When we're thinking about resemblance, we're thinking about a noun thing. So where do you often most see your image? In a mirror, right? Which is a thing, it's a noun. And so when you think about being created in the image of God, many theologians have picked up on the fact that in some way we resemble him in our being. Not physically, God is spirit, but in terms of our makeup, our ontology, our, our being. And they pointed out different things uh, that make humanity distinct from all other creatures. So things like uh, our aesthetic sense. Um, your dog does not care if you paint his doghouse pink or red or polka dot. Ski cares what color the, the doghouse is, right? We have this aesthetic sense as human beings. Our moral sense, the way we can do moral reasoning, um, our use of language, all of these things are unique to us as human beings. Uh, and if you point to animals that seem to have some aspects of these things, the way they manifest themselves in human beings is so distinct, we're talking about an entirely different category. So in some way, we have this resemblance to God, distinct beings, only humanity is created in his image, and that resemblance is meant for a purpose. It's that we might reflect him into the world. What does a mirror do? It's, an, it's a thing, it's a noun, but define a mirror for me and you're very quickly going to be using verbs because mirrors are designed to do something and human beings likewise are designed to do something, to reflect God into the world, to be his representatives. In Genesis 1.26, we read, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule. In fact, you could translate that. Uh, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule, or with the result that they may rule. We're created to be like him so that we might represent him here in this world. And in today's culture, we need to pause here long enough to say when we hear the word rule, it can have this really negative connotation sometimes. But biblically, when you look at God's rule, it's anything other than negative. How does God rule? Turn to the Psalms, you read this, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Uh, you, Lord, are God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth, which means this, 
as human beings, we, if we're to represent him, it means to live out these things in the world. His goodness, his justice, his mercy, and his love. Which means, in turn, we're not out of the first chapter of Genesis, and we're already seeing God's purpose for his creation. God's purpose for his creation. Remember, he says, fill the earth, right? If you're to be a manifestation of his goodness and love, and if you're to be a manifestation of his goodness and love, and if I'm to be a manifestation of his goodness and love, and we're now to fill the earth, well, what's his purpose for this place? That it might be filled with his goodness, his justice, his mercy, and his love. God's purpose in creation is filling the earth with his glorious kingdom. All of these things. So Genesis 1 and 2, these are some of the themes I want to highlight and, of course, expand on as I'm going through the Sea of Casket. That's 1 and 2. When you get to Genesis 3, of course, oh, this is the other thing here. Um, The other thing to highlight here is you get this beautiful theology of work in the first couple chapters of Genesis. Sometimes in the church, we have given people the impression that there are two classes of Christians. First class Christians are the ones doing real Christian work, like being pastors or missionaries, etc. Everyone else, they're kind of second class Christians. They're not doing work that's as important, but at least they can make money to support the first class Christians. Right? We sometimes give that impression. When you're reading Genesis 1 and 2 well, you're coming away with a very different impression. Because the very first person who's created to bring God glory in all that he does, what's his vocation? He's a gardener. He's a gardener. Right? You bring glory to God, not just full-time church work, but you do it by obediently trusting him in whatever it is you're called to do. That's how you bring glory to God. The janitor of the church, do you believe this? The janitor of the church can bring more glory to God than the pastor of the church if the janitor is characterized by kindness and meekness and humility when the pastor is characterized by pride and vainglory and self-seeking. Even if he preaches to 10,000 people every week, who better reflects the image of God? Who better brings God glory? Butcher, baker, candlestick maker. You can bring glory to God. We've actually had students leave Covenant Seminary once they've gotten a hold of this. I remember one young man who said, you mean I don't have to be a pastor to really bring glory to God? I'm like, nope. He's like, oh, thank goodness, because I'm going to be a lousy pastor, but I'm going to make a great accountant. And so he left to become an accountant. Uh, we now don't teach about this till the very last semester, so we don't miss out on, uh, no, I mean, from the very, just kidding, from the very beginning, as we're going through the biblical story, students grab a hold of this, right? So, Genesis 1 and 2. Of course, as the story goes on, things take this tragic turn in Genesis 3. This is sometimes referred to as the fall of humanity, and that's certainly true, but uh, I think we do better to call it the rebellion and fall. What's the difference? I'm asking you all. What's the difference between the words rebellion and fall? What's the difference? What's that? 
Yeah, one's very active, whereas one could be accidental. You fell off a log, right? What we're reading in Genesis 3 is an act of treason. Treason against the king of the universe. Now, the result is we are fallen in our sin, absolutely. But we can't miss out on the treason aspect of this. We sometimes think of sin as breaking a rule, where it's really betraying a relationship. We sometimes think of sin as breaking a rule. It's really betraying a relationship. And that's what you see here in Genesis chapter 3. There are three relationships that are ruined. Before Genesis 3, there was perfect harmony between God and Adam and Eve, between Adam and Eve themselves, and between Adam and Eve and the creation. After Genesis 3, all three of these are fractured. God has to kick Adam and Eve out of the garden Adam blames Eve for his own sin. First instance of marital discord, third chapter of the Bible. Uh, And now the creation fights back. Thorns and thistles. Pain in a way that there was never pain before. Sin is an acid that ruins and mars God's good creation. God's not being a killjoy when he forbids us from sin. He's being a loving father. As we go through the story here, one thing we see is that sin grieves the heart of God. This is an important aspect of the theology of sin in the opening chapters. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted he'd made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And I wonder, do we think of sin as something that makes God sad. I think this is both a challenge for us and it can also be a real encouragement. It's a challenge because I know there have been times in my own Christian life, I say this to my shame, where I've thought, I know this is wrong to do, but I can always just ask forgiveness. And that just makes such a mockery of the grace of God. I mean, you don't do that to somebody you love. So it's a challenge for us. Do we think of sin as something that grieves God? I tell you, it can also be an encouragement. A few years ago, a student came to me after class one day, and the previous class, we had looked at this very passage and and spoken about it in length. Uh, And he said to me, Jay, um, for the past year and a half, I have been in an incredibly lonely and dark place. A year and a half ago, my fiance broke up with me, and within a week, I learned that she had started sleeping with somebody. It was the most painful thing I have ever experienced in my life. And for the past year and a half, I felt as though I was here and God was a million miles away, leaving me alone in my grief and my sorrow. But then he said, last week, we began to go through this passage, and all of a sudden, God came very near because I understood that my fiancé's sin grieved his heart as well. And it was understanding God's grief at sin that was a comfort to him as he dealt with the trauma of his own grief being sinned against. Do we understand sin this way, not just as the breaking of a rule, but as a betraying of a relationship, as something that makes God sad, which challenges and encourages us at the same time? Well, to this point, um, what we're seeing 
is, uh, as you go through this story, um, God's grief and his mercy, right? The theme so far is humanity constantly messing things up and yet God continuing to come down and show mercy. You see that when he clothes Adam and Eve, by the way, quick aside, we sometimes tie this into, um, uh, I've heard it taught before, this, this is the first sacrifice that takes place because animals were obviously killed. And I would actually encourage us away from that line of, uh, of interpretation. If the author had wanted us to think of sacrifice, there's a lot of language he could have used to do that. And none of it appears here. I think what the author is assuming instead is that his audience, these ancient Israelites, understood what clothing represented, how it was tied in with family in the ancient Near East and inheritance, right? Why were Joseph's brothers so upset? Was it just because he got this fancy robe? Well, it was related to that, but they also understood what that communicates about love and about care, and even potentially in some contexts about inheritance. So God clothing Adam and Eve is, I think, his way of saying, hey, you're kicked out of the garden, but you're still my children. Right? Mercy. He allows Cain to live. He has Noah build a boat. So again and again, we see humanity messing up and God showing mercy. And we see that one final time as we come into Genesis 11. Genesis 11 is another story of treason. Uh, when you read through the story of the Tower of Babel, you need to remember, what did God say? I want you to what with the earth? Fill the earth, right? Spread through it. And of course, living to whose glory? To God's glory. What do we see at Babel? Come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name, the Hebrew word there is shame, for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So you see mankind rejecting the very things that God has called him to do. And in the very next verse, we read, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. If you're an ancient Israelite, you're laughing at this point. You're obviously not an ancient Israelite. But the ancient Israelites are laughing at this point because what have you just read? Let's build ourselves a city whose tower is where? Up in the heavens. And what did God have to come and do? It was so puny and tiny. It was as though, of course he can see everything, but as though he couldn't even see it from where he is. What is that tiny little? And so he comes down and says, if you're not going to fulfill my commands, all right, I'll make you. And scatters them over the face of the earth. And every time I read this story, I think of the poem by Shelley, Ozymandias. If you've ever read that poem... In it, we'll look at a few lines here in a minute, the poet tells a story of someone who's been traveling in the Middle East. And that traveler came to an archaeological site. And at the archaeological site, he saw a pedestal. And on the pedestal, there used to be a statue, but now just the legs are left. Everything else is broken away. And on the ground, beside the pedestal, is the face broken into pieces. Uh, and Ozymandias, I think, Shelley in, in this poem captures Genesis 11. Part of it goes like this. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. 
Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. And it makes me think, Jay, <laughs> who are you building the tower of your life to? I mean, are, am I, I'm sure you're with me in thinking the most precious sentence you could ever hear from Jesus' lips would be what? Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I want on my tombstone. That's the tower I want to build to. God's glory. But they're not doing that here. So the Lord judges them and again shows mercy. And we see it, Tower of Babel is followed by a genealogy. And I know, I'm just looking around, I can tell most of you love genealogies. I'm guessing you have them bumper stickers on your car, several of them. You spend time memorizing them. <laughs> no, what do we, we feel guilty when we skip these in our Bible reading plans, right? This is probably, after the genealogies of Jesus, the most important genealogy in the Bible. And there is a play on words here that's going on in the Hebrew. It's the genealogy of whom? We say Shem. In Hebrew, they'd say shame. Uh, not related to our English word shame, but they would say shame. And it's the word for name. And so we see what's going on here. The builders of the Tower of Babel were trying to build a what to themselves, for themselves? A shame. God judges them, and then he raises up the line of shame, name, that leads to Abram and says to Abram, I'm going to make your what great? Your shame great. Your name great. You see the play on words here? God's saying, humanity, you're not the ones who determine whose shame, whose name is great. I'm the one who determines that. And when I make someone's name great, one of the reasons I do it is to bring blessing to the world. And this takes us into the A of casket, Abraham. Books covered here, Genesis 12 through 50. Uh, date, around 2000 to either 1440 or 1260 BC, depending on when you put the Exodus. And major characters here, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, later renamed Israel. When you get to Abraham, it should feel like you've gotten to Genesis 1 and 2 all over again. Have you ever considered this? In Genesis 1 and 2... God calls these people and says, hey, I'm going to be fruitful and multiply. Um, he's put them in this, uh, this garden, a land, if you will, flowing with milk and honey. And he promises his presence with them as he blesses them. And then you get to Abraham. And what do you read in Genesis 12? The Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your people. I'll make you to a great nation. I will bless you. Uh, I skipped over there. A great nation. So here's people. Uh, make your name great. You'll be a blessing. Um, go to the land I will show you. Skipped over that quickly. So you, again, you've got land, God's presence with him, blessing, becoming a nation. What he intended with Adam and Eve, it's like he's starting all over again now with Abraham and his descendants. Uh, all people being blessed through him. So this is God's purpose. Again, he never gets away from this purpose of filling the earth with his kingdom that people might experience blessing. Even the geographical location of Israel shows this. So here you see a map of the ancient Near East. Uh, bottom left is Egypt, where modern-day Egypt is. Towards the right, you see Babylonia, 
That's modern day Iraq. And Israel is, if you go back to Egypt and then just come a bit up there to the right, you see Hebron and Shechem there. That's where Israel is. It's like the size of New Jersey. Now, if you wanted to get from the major population centers in the ancient world, from Babylonia to Egypt, you didn't just go straight across the Arabian Desert. Why? Yet you would die. That's why, right? I mean, actually, they did have travel routes, but you would come up and over, and you had to come through this little land bridge known as Israel. What do they say in in, uh, marketing? Location, location, location. If you want to put your people in the prime place to show the world what it means to walk in relationship with Yahweh, that's where you put them in the ancient Near East. God wants the nations to know him. So Abraham uh, takes us, of course, his descendants, takes us through the end of Genesis. His descendants do, and it leads us to Sinai, or Sinai to settlement. Books here, Exodus through Ruth, date 1440 or 1260, again, depending on the Exodus, to 1050. That's when we have um, Saul anointed as king. Major characters here, Moses, nation of Israel, Joshua, the judges, and Ruth. And as I go through this section, uh, you'll see on your handout, I try to use S's on the way through mostly. Tabernacle breaks that up, but S's on the way through. So first of all, of course, saved by God. When you go through, uh, starting in Exodus, of course, you see Moses leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. This takes us through Exodus 1 through 18, and we're introduced to an important theme here, the theme of sonship. So early on, Exodus 4.22, the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. Uh, And if you've grown up in a Western context, you probably hear this only half correctly. When the Lord's calling Israel his firstborn son, he's emphasizing two things. Of course, one, he's emphasizing care. We care for our children. When he says firstborn son, he's saying, yes, I care for you, Israel, and I will care for you. If you grew up in the West, you hear that. But there's something else an Israelite would hear, and often many of my students, international students, hear this, and that is, in the ancient world, the firstborn son had a special responsibility, wasn't expected of other children. He had to learn the father's business because he was going to be doing the father's business in the world. So when Israel here is called a firstborn son, it's not only care, it's already this missional aspect. Israel, you're to be doing my business in the world, reflecting my character in the world. Missional aspect of things. You see this again as you go through Exodus and Exodus 19, very well-known verses here, when the Lord calls... uh, the Israelites, not just his firstborn son, but here a kingdom of priests. Now, in ancient Israel, why did you go to a priest? Let me ask you several different reasons. Why, what were some of the reasons why you went to a priest? What did a priest do for you? What kinds of things? Inquire of to inquire of the Lord for you, right, or to mediate between you and the Lord. Why, why else? Make sacrifices on your behalf. Sure. Uh, Priests were known as the teachers. Prophets are covenant enforcers. Priests were the teachers. You want to know who God is, what it means to worship him, how to pray to him, you go to a priest. Israel had priests within the nation, 
But do you see what the Lord is saying here about Israel? You're to be a kingdom of priests. Where? In the context of the world. Do you see all the earth is mine? What's your role, Israel? To pray for the nations, to teach them who I am. It's this missional role. Again, God's not getting away from this purpose of his kingdom spreading throughout the world. Of course, we get on the other side of Exodus 19. We know that Israel fails in this. Exodus 32, the golden calf. Uh, Skip ahead to Numbers 14. They refuse to go into the land. Um, uh, I recently was working on a commentary on Numbers. And I have to confess that like from 14 through to 21 was, was pretty depressing to write on. Because it's just story after story of rebellion. People refusing to do what the Lord asks them to do. And as depressing as it was, there was this silver lining of encouragement. Because I've seen how often I've been like Israel. And one thing you see is that God doesn't love you because you're perfectly righteous. He loves you in his mercy. One of my favorite verses is Deuteronomy 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous than other people's. Well, why? Why did the Lord set his affection on you? Why did he love you? It was because he loved you. As one of my mentors said, he loves you because he loves you. In fact, would you personalize that with me and repeat after me? He loves me because he loves me. All together. He loves me because he loves me. This is what we see again and again and again in the story of the Pentateuch up to this point. So after Israel's sin, what happens? Uh, They go into the land under Joshua. This is where we read through the story of the judges. Um, I'm not going to take time here. I want to skip to the end of that story. The, The book of Judges ends with this refrain. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And what's the implication? What do we need? We need a king. Right. And this takes us into the K of casket. Uh, The books covered there, of course, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, several of the prophets fit in here. And again, that's where that pamphlet is so helpful to begin to help you to place the prophets in terms of where they show up. The date, 1050 to 586. What happens in 586? Exile, right? Major characters here, Saul, David, Solomon, Jonah, Isaiah, as some of the prophets. Uh, very quickly, first two kings, uh, Samuel, of course, and is anointing them. Saul is this king like the nations. And their mistake here was that Israel wasn't looking for character. They were looking at gifting. And they saw Saul, who was so strong, they thought, he's, he's the guy we need. And, of course, gifting only gets you so far. Because eventually you're going to meet someone who has greater gifts like a Goliath, and it's character that you need, not just, by the way, for spiritual leaders. The Bible puts this emphasis on character for leaders in general, and as Christians, we need to remember that, the emphasis the Bible puts on the importance of character. Anyway, we get to David. He's the one with character, and when you get to um, the description of David uh, and kings in general, they have a nickname, in the Psalms at least. They're known as Yahweh's firstborn. Sound familiar? 
When's the last time we read about a firstborn? Well, with Israel. Why is the king called the firstborn? Well, because the king is to be the ideal Israelite. And he's the one who's to be about the father's business now, ruling righteously on behalf of Yahweh. The king, of course, is also known as the anointed one, the Mashiach, because when you became king, you were anointed. Uh, And as you go through the Davidic... um, Uh, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, what's fascinating is that the things you see mentioned to Abraham show up again here. It's like Abraham part two. Uh, Abraham, the sequel. Abraham, this time we mean it, right? So when you're reading through 2 Samuel 7, I'll make your name great. Uh, I'll provide a place so we get land. Um, Raise up your offspring after you, your house and your kingdom. He's obviously going to have relationship with God and blessing. And so now the Abrahamic promises get focused on this Davidic figure, this Davidic king who's to rule righteously on the Lord's behalf. Uh, So you see this continuation of God's purpose. An anointed one, a Messiah who is God's son, righteous ruling, ideal Israelite. You can see where this is going, can't you? When we get to the Gospels. Uh, But before we get there, just a few other things. Divided monarchy, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, um, you know what, in light of time, what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to skip through exile and second temple and just go on to pick up on some of the ways that you see tie-ins to Jesus. Here are some of the main ones you can pick up on. Uh, a lot of these come right out of the beginning of Matthew's gospel. So first, Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness. Reminds us, of course, of 40 years in the wilderness. But here's the new Israel. Right? And he rejects the devil's temptation of food. Adam didn't. Jesus does. He's a second Israel. He's a second Adam, but this time acting righteously. As you read his genealogy, it's a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so these two Old Testament figures, we already saw Abraham becomes part two in David, That becomes fulfilled in part three now in Jesus. He's the Davidic king. He's God's son. He's the one in whom all the nations are going to be blessed. Uh, Out of Egypt, I called my son. Again, picking up on Jesus as the new Israel, doing perfectly what the father does. As you go through Matthew's gospel, where does the sermon on, what happens with the sermon on the mount? Here you have Jesus going up on a mountain Teaching God's law. Sound familiar? Yeah, this, this is the far greater Moses, who not only gives us his law, the law of God, he follows it perfectly. John 1.14, we read, the word became flesh and dwelt. If you know the King Jimmy, you'll remember it says here, tabernacled among us. And the Greek word there for tabernacle picks up on the Greek word in the Septuagint for the tabernacle itself. So that John is saying, don't miss it. Remember how God's glory came down on the tabernacle? Here it's coming down again on Jesus. And in fact, ties it into Exodus 34, full of grace and truth, where we read, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, etc. Here we have God in the flesh. Uh, Moses couldn't even see his face. In Jesus, the glory of God shines forth in the face of Christ. Jesus is called the Lamb of God, picking up on all the things about atonement that you read in the Old Testament. 
when Jesus is baptized, you see the, 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 the spirit come down on a dove, as a dove, as though to anoint him and a voice from heaven saying, this is my son. Anointed by the spirit, again, the Messiah, the king. And what does this king tell us to do? In the Great Commission, I like to think of the original disciples hearing this. You know, there's just a small group of them standing around, right? And Jesus says, um, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples. And, <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine? There's no Christian church right now. And Jesus is here, and he says that to this room. And you're looking around, and you're thinking, <laughs> how in the world is that going to work? What's going to work because he began by saying, I'm the one who has all the authority. And he ends by saying, I am with you to the very end of the age. And that's why we can do with bold courage, amazing things for the Lord. Not because we're great, but because he is and he's with us. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.